Well, we've been on a series at the moment about idols. Thank you, Scott, for praying about idols. I've been preaching about worship and I've been preaching about idols. So thanks for listening to the sermons. Uh, it's good, isn't it? But I don't know if you, um, if you understand this, but, but we've been talking about idols and about worship and about dealing with the idols within our hearts and that journey that exists within the idols of our hearts And we have to be willing to allow the Lord to deal with those deep idols of our lives. We started off really talking about the whole idea of of the fact that we can create idols from our um, romance. Ernest Becker said this, he said that when we elevate somebody to a point of of, uh, a kind of high in romance... From that relationship, we're not just looking for a partner, we're actually looking for redemption. And of course, Ernest Becker said that when you delete God from society, we always replace God with something else. And what society will do, he said, will replace God with romance and love and sex. And our society has become like that. Nietzsche, of course, said that when we delete God from society, and of course he's the one that famously said God is dead. Of course, Nietzsche is dead now. Um, But God is dead. Uh, He actually said that when we take God out of the equation of our lives, what we will do is worship something else. And he said the Western world would then worship money and wealth and commerce. And that's how we find our comfort in our lives. So we have to work out when we look at the subject of worship is where are our personal idols in our own life because they are hidden deep and I talked about the power of the idol of greed and I have to commend you that you all um, uh, listened really well and I said that greed is a sermon that we rarely preach on because none of us think we suffer with greed. I've uh, said that I've spent the last 30 years in ministry and nobody's come to me and confessed that they're struggling with the sin of greed. They've come and confessed they're struggling with the sin of lust uh, and all kinds of things, but never greed because we never think we're greedy and we never often battle over that relationship with money. But we have a way as human beings of, when we look at our lives, of making success, romance, money into God's within our lives, and they then affect who we are. But I want to talk about the, the idol of power and the idol of pride within our lives. And I want to take us back to an ancient king called Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, but before I get there, um, I was interested in the, um, in, in the story of... Um, of what the the philosopher and theologian Neighbour said, a brilliant theologian from the last century. Now, I'm not putting these two gentlemen up here. Let's just straighten them up, otherwise I'll get into trouble. I'm not putting these two gentlemen up to make a political statement. What I want to make is a theological statement and a theological and philosophical statement, a philosophical statement. Have you noticed... 
that the world is changed. As one 94-year-old woman was reported to say, she said, it used to be that when we had a president who we didn't vote for, we all then chose that he was our president. But these days, when we have a president that we don't vote for, it's everybody wants to leave the country. When Barack Obama became president, tens of thousands of Republicans Googled, how can I move to Canada? (laughs) Then when Trump came to presidency, millions of Democrats. (laughs) What I want to comment on is not the political stance, because these are both men that I've prayed for avidly, as Scripture calls me to do. But what Neighbor said was, When we delete God from our politics and we delete God from our nation, we then put our hope in policies like doctrines and put our hope in presidents or prime ministers like saviors. And of course, that is the danger that can take place. And they've disappeared now. The rapture's come. And, And... At that moment, we realize that often what happens politically is that we think an ideological idea or a philosophical idea or politics, a policy of doctrine will be the answer. And neighbor says, you'll not get the answer from making an individual into a person who we make into a Messiah figure who's going to solve all of our problems. We know this from the French Revolution when Maximilian led the way and of course it was equality and liberty and this is fantastic and we're going to have a great time and we're going to wave our flags and we're going to chop everybody's heads off and of course where they looked high in equality and liberty the actions of the French revolution was absolute terror and what neighbor points out is this That when we put our trust in anything else except God and the gospel, then human beings will often go low. That power, pride, our belief, our arrogance, this was the great communist experiment of socialism. Deleting God completely from the world saying that every man and everything say a utopia vision of the future would be and yet we can see that the great socialistic experiment of the communistic movement certainly in Europe is just about over you can't take god out of the world because when you rely upon man the real villain is not the president the real villain though they are villainous figures The real villain is one thing, and one thing only. The real villain is sin in the hearts of men. That's the real villain. 
You take and you try and ignore the work of sin. You try and ignore the work of darkness. You try and ignore the work of the enemy and pride and prejudice and power and oppression takes over because the real villain in the narrative of humanity is that man has fallen and for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the real villain. You may have your doctrine of policies. You may have put up your politicians and your philosophies as our great answer to the world and the only answer to the inner heart of man is who rules our lives and it is that inner loss that is created by the villainous nature of fallen of the sin of, of, of sin within each of our lives and so we tend then to make idols of political powers We make idols of political answers and we are now in the middle of what I guess is the great free market experiment of the philosophy of the wealth of nations. And we all thought 2008 would solve that problem, but man loves money. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is fallen. And we live in a world where we create idols of other things. And so we must realize that really pride is the problem. Pride is always the problem. Pride wrecks our lives. So I want to tell you a story about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the ancient ruler of the greatest empire at that time, Babylon. It has become a figure of evil. It's become a figure right the way through the scriptures of of the alternative way to live the life and the alternative way to be. And in the middle of this kingdom, however, there is a fascinating character called Nebuchadnezzar. And where he starts is that Nebuchadnezzar, God wanted to work out with Nebuchadnezzar and gave him spiritual dreams about who really is number one and who really is the master of the world and who really rules the world. Because you can only have one master within your life. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, had a dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. You know, powerful political rulers are troubled by many things. Nebuchadnezzar was no different. He's troubled by what? He's troubled by fear. He's troubled by anxiety. He's troubled by sleepless nights. Because it's very precarious being a great mighty ruler. Because people want your position. They want to take from you. And often where there's an idol, there is always fear. Have you noticed that? And the definition of an idol is that we love it, we trust it, and we obey it. And so he's struggling. He cannot sleep. He's finding this tough. And of course, he has this dream that bothers him. But really what God is doing to him in this dream of a mighty statue that is gold and silver and bronze and iron and, iron and clay... What God is really saying to him is, who's number one? 
Who is the master in this world? Who is number one within your life? What is going on? Because I see the pride that exists within you. I see what is taking place. This HBO movie, The Wizard of Lies, was a story of a guy, you may not have heard of him. His name was Bernard Madoff. He ran ran what is called a Ponzi scheme. He ripped off pensioners, pension funds, inheritance money, to the tune of $65 billion. He's played here by Robert De Niro and his wife there played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And he was sentenced in a packed courtroom to 150 years in prison. So he's never going to get out. He'd ripped people off. And when he stood before the New York court, absolutely packed with the people that he had ripped off, the money he had had stolen the scheme that he had run, the Ponzi scheme that had affected and broken so many lives. It's staggering as a man, absolute disheveled, standing there, what did he say? Well, first of all, he turned to the packed audience in the court and said, forgive me, I am sorry. He said, I made a mistake But I could not allow my pride to tell anybody that I'd made a mistake, that I was weak, that I was wrong. And it was my pride that took me to do this terrible thing. It is my pride that ruined me. And my pride was my weakness. Wow. Well, that was a pretty big... $65 billion. What an extreme example of the power of pride within our lives. Our pride. You see, what the Lord is looking for, He's saying, who's master of your life, Nebuchadnezzar? And are you willing to show, are you willing to show some meekness? Are you willing to show some humility within who you are, the great king of Babylon? Are you willing to do this? And so he looked, O king, and there before me stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue. Isn't humanity all about that? Our culture, our... Uh, achievements, all of our amazing abilities, our culture and our commerce. And what, what the Lord is saying in this dream is, look at all of this, your golden head, your silver body, your bronze. And of course, it represents the great empires of the world, the, the Assyrians and the Persians and, and the Romans. And of course, the final toes, if you're into um, kind of trying to work out all the end times, they said was the ten toes were, of course, the European Union. The problem is now there's 36 of them. Um, That's the way with prophecy. It all gets very confusing. One thing I want to tell you, though, is Jesus Christ is returning. And 
And there's a dazzling way of humanity that we dazzle. We are amazing. We have created chests of silver, belly and thighs of bronze. And, and suddenly they watched as if a rock came from a mountain. And as this rock came, it hit the statue and smashed it to pieces. And it became like chaff on the threshing floor. In other words, what God is saying is your kingdoms and your empires that you build are nothing because the hand of God is mighty. And what I am looking from humanity is not your brilliance. I'm looking for your humility. I think the Lord metaphorically looks at each of our own hearts and said, I'm not always so impressed with your ability to build your little empires. But what I'm looking for is your humility. We think we're pretty special. But we forget sometimes in our world that there is one mighty kingdom. Well, Nebuchadnezzar got the message. He got the dream. Wow. And the mighty kingdom. And he said, in that time of those kings... God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It will never be destroyed and no other nation will ever take it over. It will crush all those other kingdoms and it will bring them to an end. But it will last forever. See, that's the tension that God is trying to create in the narrative. Here is a mighty ruler who is the master of the world. Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it the Lord of heaven? What the Lord of heaven is looking for from Nebuchadnezzar is meekness. As Jesus preached, is humility. Is who are you serving? And I want to remind you, he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, that you may have a great empire, but my mighty kingdom will always reign. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to remind you that there is one mighty kingdom that reigns forever. And we're foolish when we become the rulers of our own life. When we forget. And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him an honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Surely, notice it, your God is this. See, a transaction hasn't gone in Nebuchadnezzar's heart from being your God to my God. He acknowledges it academically. He acknowledges it that God is mighty, that Daniel represents the one who can tell dreams, interpret dreams, and makes all the astrologers and the mysterious powers and all of the ancient wizards, if you like, look ridiculous when the man of God turns up because the man of God has a relationship with the God who reigns in heaven. Everything else looks ridiculous, and he's saying, wow. I can see this. This God is right. Burn some incense quickly, Daniel. For Daniel, he's great. And there's always a danger that academically and mentally we know that the God in heaven is great, but it's got to move from here to here in our lives. 
Because we're all in danger of being emperors and rulers of our own hearts, of putting other things as number one. And, and, and Jesus is always contending with you that you would not be the master of your own life, but you would submit to the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a deep journey, friends, to give up the rule of our lives. And Nebuchadnezzar is, well, it's this, you notice I'm using lots of M's this morning, just to help you with your notes. So it should have said control there in one sense, but manipulation seems like a good, good word as well that goes with the master, the meekness the mighty, and manipulation. You go, what did Phil preach on? He preached on something about M&Ms. Um, <laughs> but we think in the Western world, living in 2017, that we are amazing. We honestly believe that we can control our world and manipulate our environment because we can do anything if we really feel we can. Have you noticed that in modern culture? We're amazing. (laughs) We're not. I want to be sensitive to this because it's such an idol. You know, we're told you can do anything. You can concede. If you want to make a million bucks, you can make a million bucks. I know that, that I'm a product of three things. I'm a product of my DNA. I have blue eyes, sort of blonde hair. I have certain abilities. I'm also a product of my environment, the education I received, the way I was brought up, a product of, of opportunities I've been given. My environment also has to do with the age I'm born in, the country I'm born in. The, the fifth, I was born in the fifth richest country in the world. It's now the sixth, and that's the way it goes with Brexit. And it goes, and I'm in Canada, one of the greatest countries in the world, and the richest countries with the most resources next to Brazil. I live in 2017 with terrific opportunities. And yet the danger is, is that we think that we are greater and better and that we are Lord of our own lives. If you'd been born in Yucca, in Mongolia, you would be born poor and you would die poor in 2017. For all the positive thinking... Because we're a product of our environment and we happen to be the wealthiest and the most blessed people on the face of the planet. When there's immense poverty and pain and in some areas of the world, absolutely no opportunity, no able. And if you go back in time, just 200 years, 250 years, you discover that general rule was we were all in poverty. We were all... 
laborers on farms. We all worked for a feudal system where there was no way to escape. And even though Downton Abbey may have amazing storylines about the driver marrying the uh, member of the family and they're all running off together and it's all happening... My 95 grandfather would always laugh at those storylines because he knew how impossible it was to move on in that culture at that time. Do I believe that we can achieve things? Of course. But what I'm saying is that what we do is we make a... We, we pride ourselves in our ability to control our environment. Have you ever heard anybody, particularly problem with British people, when they're talking about the amazing th- things they've done with the housing market and flipped houses, done this, done that, oh yes, it's like they're some kind of genius. When actually, research shows it has very little to do with genius. It has to do with environment. What I'm saying is that we need a lot more humility when we look at our lives. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, why are you all thinking you're so great? I have used Apollos and myself as an example to illustrate what I have been saying. That you must not have favorites. You must not be proud of one of God's teachers more than others. What are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why are you acting as though you are, some, are so great? As though you have accomplished something on your own. This is the point I'm making to make us feel uncomfortable. Often we feel that we've accomplished something on our own. And he's the apostle saying, why are you saying you're so great? Why are you saying you're so amazing? Why are you saying that you are in control? Why are you saying that you are better than others in your heart? Because the truth is what you have is a gift from God by the grace of God in this time. I want to fall to my knees and I want to repent for my arrogance of my own brilliance. Because it becomes an idol, like Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm so awesome. I'm so in control of my life. I'm so in control of who I am. I've got the X factor. I'm amazing. What God looks for is you to give up control of your life and to say, I trust God and I know that what I have is by his grace. And then you live thankfully, don't you? Then you give generously and then you are kind to others. And you don't think of your opinion as far better. And you don't walk around in arrogance because the Lord has worked in your heart. But you see, Nebuchadnezzar didn't get the message. And God's not going to let go of us until we get this message in our lives. At one time or another, God will. And so Nebuchadnezzar experienced the madness. 
He had another dream. Your majesty, here is what the dream means. It's that the Nebuchadnezzar saw a great king and he saw him on the ground amongst the, amongst the animals and eating grass and having some kind of breakdown. And you will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass just as ox does and you will become wet with the dew of heaven. In other words, God's going to lay you down. Seven periods of time will pass by for you. And then you will recognize that the most high God rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. And I think this is what God's trying to do with us always. He wants you and I to recognize continuously that it's the most high God that rules over the earth. He gives them to anyone he wants. But he gave a command to leave a stump of a tree in the roots, saying it's not going to be all over for him. A kingdom will be given back to you and it will happen when you recognize that the God of heaven rules. So your majesty, I hope you will accept my advice. Start being sinful. Do what is right. Give up your evil practices. Show kindness to those who are being treated badly. Then perhaps things will continue to go well. Isn't this just a beautiful line? Just pack it in trying to rule your own life, and will you show kindness? Give up and let go and let God take you. Pack it in. Stop trying to control everything. Start to serve him, Nebuchadnezzar. But he forgot about the dream. And one year later, the king took his merit, the king's merit. It took place 12 months later. God has a way of leaving it for a while. He was walking on the roof of his palace in Babylon, and he said, isn't this a great Babylon I I have built as a place for my royal place? I used to be mighty. I, I used my mighty power to build it. And it shows how glorious my majesty is. Wow. Arrogance, ego, reminds me of Bernard Manoff. You know, I can build my Ponzi scheme. I'm the top of the world. I can clever enough to get out of the mess I'm in. I'm number one. And what did God do? God struck him. And he fell from a mighty height and he's on the floor now and he's in the palace garden. He's acting completely out of control. He's suffering with some kind of breakdown. God is humbling him and saying, now I'm going to deal with you. Look at what you've become. Look at this. You have become intoxicated with your power, with your opinion, with yourself. You have become arrogant. You have lifted up and said, look at this, my land. It is all by my mighty power. And God humbled him. And the New Testament teaches us that when we become arrogant and prideful, In our Christian walk, God has the ability to kind of poke us and humble us and shake our world. Say, come on, why are you acting this way? Why are you thinking this way? 
Now, you're all wondering why I've put a dragon on the screen with a small rodent dressed with a sword. I don't know if any of you know what this film is from. Now, the HBO film I never watched, so don't rush off and go and watch it. Because um, the Wizard of Lies. Because um, sometimes I mention things and people go, you know, I I can read articles and books. And and I don't always watch the film. So HBO, I can't promise what's in there with Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert De Niro. But what I can promise in this, you can all watch this film. It's The Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. The Chronicles of Narnia. I love the Dawn Treader the best, the most. Why? Because it has this amazing character called Eustace. And Eustace is an annoying little fella who likes to tease animals and, and create problems and mess around with people's minds. He likes to be in charge. He likes to be number one. He's a small little... English boy, and he runs around, and he likes to rule the roost, and he makes their lives a complete miserable. He wants to be number one. He wants to be the top. He wants to be the prince. He wants to be Nebuchadnezzar. And one day, he finds a cave, and it's full of gold. He's so excited, he climbs into the cave, climbs up on top of the gold, and sleeps on all this gold. He loves it. Loves it. And he wakes up in the morning. It's that kind of gold that turns you into a dragon. And the little boy has now become intoxicated by the treasure. And he's turned into a dragon. And ugly. Now he is powerful. Now he is awesome. Now he can...